Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. All right, well, let's get the show on the road. So um, Bill Sutton is on vacation this week. Um, I don't know why we let him do that, but that's okay. He probably, <laughs> he probably had it coming. Sitting in this week with us is Brendan J. O'Reilly, who is manning the controls in Bill's absence. Hey, Brendan. Hi, Annette. I am Brendan. I'm the features editor of the Express News Group. And we also have Catherine G. Manu, a.k.a. Georgie. Hey, Georgie. Hey, Annette. I'm Georgie, um, sometimes known as Catherine, and I am one of the publishers of the Express News Group. Oh, it's so so honored to be here, and I read your columns all the time. <laughs> so I'll introduce that voice in just a second. We also have Joe Shaw here. Hiya, Joe. How you doing? I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. And my name's Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And as you heard, um, coming in there was Matthew O'Grady, and Matthew is our special guest today, and Matthew lives in Sac Harbor with his husband, John Shaka. They've been together for 22 years, and um, Matthew has a very interesting story that I found out about um, probably a month ago. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm just, first of all, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm honored. I love uh, the Sac Harbor Express and your columns and your paper. And I'm a voracious reader of newspapers, but I do start with you because all news, I think, starts locally. Oh, um, you you are so a wonderful human being. It, it's a mutual admiration society. No, it's like, look, if you don't know your community, you don't know the world. So 100%. start locally. So I'm really honored to be here. I love podcasts and I think you guys do a terrific job. When we were in, in living in the UK, we'd be driving in the Scottish Highlands and we'd download the podcast and like listening to it. You know? You're kidding. Yes. No, no. Oh my, no. Oh my we goodness, were... so much pressure you're putting on us now. <laughs> no, no, we loved it. We loved just even hearing about the traffic and the problems and stuff. <laughs> I picture the two of you pulled over on a Scottish you know? road wearing kilts, dancing to our theme music. <laughs> yeah, we... It, it I know you like clean. the occasional dress, Matthew. So. <laughs> right, right. You know, I had a kilt, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it was it was for nightclub. It was for the Pyramid Club. It oh. wasn't for Scotland. <laughs> I have always, you know, as someone who in, in my distant ancestry, as Scottish in me, I, I really wish kilts would come back in general. I think kilts are, they look really comfortable and I would wear a kilt, except that I don't know that it's socially acceptable at the moment, but. I think on the Lower East Side in the 1980s, which is what we'll be talking about, it was totally acceptable. Annette, you are absolutely right. It was it was chic to wear a kilt and mm -hmm. some combat boots and a tank top and go to Wigstock in 1992. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that may not be the vibe I can pull off. I, I, I could give it a try. No. I, I think don't you know can pull it off. Pull it, oh, I think I got I'm, it. I'm, I'm game. I'll, I'll give it a try, but... I was thinking just more for everyday wear. I think kilts, uh, I would wear a kilt. Our tartan, tartan Joe Shaw. Yes. <laughs> and Matthew, yeah. I thought it would be interesting to talk about um, how we first met and where we first met last month. Ah, uh, right. In the cemetery. Um, so, yes, we John has been speaking about Annette and Catherine for years. 
So he drags me to the cemetery on November 1st um, for the Day of the Dead, <clears throat> you know, in Spanish. And what is it? El, el Dio de, de Muertos? De Muertos. De los Muertos. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a little chilly. I'm a little reluctant, but I do get out there. And, you know, and because I love obituaries and I read your obits maybe all the time. So what's best next to an obit? Go to the cemetery. So we show up and we're walking around and we're, you know, and our mutual friend um, said, you know, please talk about somebody who's passed in your life, who means a lot to you. Um, and the person I had spoken about who's been on my mind a lot lately <clears throat> is was my childhood best friend and my lifetime best friend, Jonathan Larson, um, who was the composer uh, who wrote Rent and Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, and Tick, Tick, Boom, as you know now, is out in the theaters and playing and streaming on Netflix. Um, and so I, I spoke about Jonathan briefly because we all wanted to honor somebody on that, that evening <clears throat> uh, for all the souls that have departed. And, um, you know, Catherine picked up on it uh, because I believe there was a production of Rent years ago at the um, East Hampton uh, high school was it East Hampton or actually, in that. actually it was me yeah because my my daughter's best friend starred as the character of Angel mm -hmm. in that East Hampton production so right. it was something that was definitely oddly close to me because um it was a it was a really great production that the high school did and as somebody who was living in New York in the 80s around the time that Renaissance it was incredibly peripherally familiar to me the places and the and the people. I will say as a theater geek in the 90s, I mean, there was nothing more important than rent, you know, I mean, that's, you, you made pilgrimages into the city to experience it for the mm -hmm. first time. Um, so I was really excited when I heard about the story. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, the, the obvious tragedy is Jonathan never got to see any <clears throat> of the success because he, he died on the opening the first night of previews, not even opening night, he died of the first night of previews when Rent was just starting at the New York Theater Workshop, you know, in late January of 1996. Um, he had an undetected aortic aneurysm. He had what is known as Marfan's uh, syndrome. And he unfortunately went to several hospitals um, right before he died and a couple of weeks before he died, getting x-rays, complaining of chest pains, and they went undiagnosed. They basically were, were not read, um, which was just tragedy on top of tragedy, you know, that somebody who spent, you know, 15 years writing stories and music, um, you know, but at the same time, Jonathan knew in his core that he was going to change musical theater, you know, mm -hmm. He was determined, he was confident, and he just had an unwavering belief that there was an audience out there for musicals and stories, you know, that weren't being played. That was the thing. Rent was really groundbreaking, wasn't it? It, it, it really did change uh, Broadway in a, in a lot of ways. And it's just so tragic that he didn't get a chance to see that. Yeah, it, it did. But he believed it. You know, I mean... You know, some people thought he was nuts because of that confidence, but he'd say to people, I'm going to change musical theater. And you have to have that level of determination and confidence in order to achieve greatness, you know, mm. and he had it, um, you know, and, you know, the painful irony of it is he's writing about, 
me and other people like me who thinks you're going to die, you know, and he dies. You know, you can't make this story up. Mm. I mean, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Angel character? Because you are the model for Angel and explain to people who Angel is and sort of the parallels between the Angel, the character, and Angel, your life. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, everybody in Rent is sort of a collage. So there's some of me in Angel, there's some of me in Tom Collins. But, you know, I wasn't, you know, a homeless drag queen living in the East Village, you know, but I, I did do, you know, a lot of drag. And um, I did try and bring our community together around support for people who are HIV positive. So Angel took everybody to a life support group, which is based on um, Friends Indeed. And Friends Indeed was an organization that was founded by Mike Nichols and Cynthia O'Neill in, I think it was 1990 or 1991, like at the height of the AIDS crisis. And a place for people to go about talking about death and talking about illness. You know, so they provided non-medical support for it. So the, 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 the scene in act one where they go to the life support group is friends indeed. And Angel, I brought, dragged Jonathan there and I dragged a lot of our friends there because I found it early on with my own status. And um, so, you know, and, and I was so happy that the message of love versus fear, which is what they were preaching, or what, you know, Cy O'Neill, who was managing these, you know, these um, support groups, you know, uh, that made it into rent as a principal message, no day but today, you know, live today as if it's your last, and you choose love or fear. And that made it into Tick, Tick, Boom as well. So John, being the curious guy he is, look, if you were around him, your life was open license, you know, <laughs> I mean, he just took whatever he saw and, and put it to music. And I just, with all due respect, never thought, okay, take my life. Nobody's gonna ever listen to it anyway because it's so hard to get anything produced. You know, it's not like I was projecting that he'd never be successful, but I was like, okay, another reading. Okay, you know, we'll help you. You know, I had a car, so I'm dragging around this musical equipment. <clears throat> so it's, you know, so Angel is a lot of me, but you know, there's a lot of other people in there. Like he saw my friends, you know, he saw my friends who were, you know, less fortunate, you know, or who were dying, you know, or so, but, but drag was so much fun, especially Christmas drag, you know, and I'll tell you when you got up in drag and in, in, in the city in, in the eighties and the nineties, it was hard to get a cab, you know, they just thought you were just mm. some tranny hooker and, you know, you're going to 10th Avenue and you're going to jump out of the cab and not pay. So Jonathan had this old ratty 1977 Datsun station wagon that looked like it was going to crumble at any moment. You know, it was so rusty. And <laughs> but he would drive us around. He'd pick us up because he was up at all hours, like, you know, writing music or something. I could call him at two in the morning and say, hey, we can't get a cab. And we're at the Pyramid Club and it's really cold out, you know. And if you're in really big heels, you know, you can't walk. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we know. <laughs> So I'm curious, did, did, did John, Jonathan talk about Rent as he was writing it with you? What, was, what, what, did, he, what did he tell you as he was writing Rent? Um, did, did he talk about it while it was sort of in the germination stage? I'm curious how he, how he discussed it. Yeah, I mean, 
the, the year before uh, Jonathan died, I had a terrible knee injury. So I spent an enormous amount of time with them because I was on crutches for like a year and a half. So on crutches, you can't carry anything. So he became laundry pickup, mm-hmm. he became grocery. So every time he came over, I had to sit down and listen to a new song, you know? So it's like, oh God, here it comes. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I'm not a theater person really. I mean, he took liberties with that, but yes, he would tell me the story and the excitement. And I was more interested in the production side and trying to get him you know, to work with the director and work with the producers and, you know, the compromising that he had to do because he wrote this all on his own. And now he's collaborating with really powerful and successful and established people like Michael Greif. He was delighted that Michael was the director of it, you know, and working at the New York Theater Workshop. So my role was less critiquing the music and the story than encouraging him to work with them and say, you know, cause he wanted to open rent with Angel's memorial service. And I'm like, oh, come on, that's so depressing. You know, I mean, let's open with something else. You know, how about a show tune? You want people to come and pay for this, you know? So <laughs> it, it, yeah, I, I, he did tell me a lot about it. With Tick, Tick, Boom, um, I knew he was talking about my life and I was, and it was, and that was 1990 and I was very afraid of my status then. Um, and so I, I, I couldn't go there then. Um, you were, you were uh, HIV positive, you mean, that, yes. your, your status. Yeah. And, and in 1990, that was, that was a terrifying thing, right? Yeah, I mean, AZT was just coming out yeah. then. I don't even know if AZT was out. Yeah, it was out probably by then, but that was really toxic. You know, and everything was fear and very few people knew. I mean, I, John was one of the first people I told, but I had a very small circle of people, you know, because it was a death sentence. You know, you didn't want to worry your mother, you know, with something like this. You know? Well, that's the irony is that you're the one that had HIV, but Jonathan's the one that died unexpectedly. Right. It's a painful irony. It's very you know, painful that he's not here to, to see all this. And it's amazing, you know, and there's so many other songs besides Tick, Tick, Boom and 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 rent that are there in his in his archive you know that that would have he would have he would have been a very very productive composer and storyteller you know i mean the thing about you know everybody thinks about the music the music and the music but john won a pulitzer for drama you know and he yeah. won yeah um you know the tonys were not only best musical but best original score and best you know book of a musical so he was a, equally a good storyteller. That's why everybody's crying over Tick, Tick, Boom right now, because it's a great story. And he, he was so young, right? He was 35? Yeah, he was 35. 35, about to turn 36. So he was just, you know, he had so many years to develop as an artist. He, you know, who knows where right. his talents would have gone. So I think, I think we should not bury the lead, and we should mention that Tick, Tick, Boom, the film, is directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> um, minor detail. Hello. <laughs> um, and and I, if you haven't seen the film, um, I'll, I'll do I'll try my best to describe the premise, but you can jump in, Matt, if you want. Um, it's basically sort of an autobiographical tale of of um, Jonathan Larson as he's putting together um, a musical that that was called Superbia. Um, never really got off the ground, but he had a couple workshops of it. At the same time, he's working at a diner that reminds me of a lot of the Empire Diner, which is right up the road for me. I don't know if that's where he really worked, but I recognize a lot of the details of that. Um, and um, and Stephen Soundheim, ironically, even comes to a workshop of his musical and gives yeah. him some 
some uh, encouragement. And though that doesn't become a musical, eventually he ends up getting um, interested in writing Rent and it goes from there. But it's really um, the three main characters are Jonathan Larson, um, Jonathan's girlfriend, and the third character is his best friend named Michael, aka Matthew O'Grady. Right. Did I get yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good summary of it. Um, it's um, it's been around for thirty years. It started as Boho of thirty sixty ninety, I think, was the first. There's like three or four different drafts of it, but um, the the music. The I'm so grateful that Lin Mil, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda directed this, and the producer Julie O and Julie Larson, John's sister, was also a producer. I'm so grateful that they did such a terrific job with this film. Also to be noted though, was there was a 2001 production of Tick, Tick, Boom at the Jane Street Theater that Scott Schwartz directed from Sac Harbor and David Auburn uh, wrote uh, the, 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 uh, the book for that. And I'm very grateful for them in doing that. And that was a terrific cast even back then, Raul Esparza, Amy Spangler, Jerry Dixon. I mean, really good cast. And now we get Andrew Garfield and Robin De Jesus. Um, Alexandra Shipp and Vanessa Hudgens. I mean, it's it's a, it's a great cast, you know, with a lot of little great cameos. Judith Light's in it and Bradley Whitford's in it. I mean, and the cameos, I'm not going to give it away, but you got to see the diner scene. They have Bernadette Peters, you know, and B.B. Newer. They have like <laughs> incredible people show up as cameos. Daphne Rubin Vega, you know, uh, Pascal, it's unbelievable. The people that- Ruben Vega, right. she was the original Mimi, right? She was the original Mimi. She has a cameo in the diner scene, but the diner is based, Annette, on the Moondance Diner, which is very similar to the Empire Diner, but the Moondance Diner was on 6th Avenue and just below Houston Street. And across the street, there was a garage, a taxi garage, which is now, of course, they're all big buildings now. But at that garage, John said, I swear, all they're doing is, is playing God Bless America by Kate Smith, you know, <laughs> because the garage, like this really pro-American guy who owned this garage and put out patriotic music. And John, the thing about Jonathan that I want everybody to know is that he had an un terrific sense of humor. He was a really funny guy and he saw the absurdity of life and he was a witness to life. You know, so he wrote, that's why with Tick, Tick, Boom, he wrote about his friends and he inspired Lynn. I mean, Lynn saw it at the Jane Street Theater. Lynn saw, you know, Rent when he was 17 at the back of the mezzanine theater with his girlfriend, like when he was still in high school or something, you know. So John was an inspiration, Joe, like you were saying, for so much more for 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 Broadway to just, you know, explode into something new. And, and now musicals are, are doing well as movies as well. But, you know, I mean, when, when Rent opened up, the only sort of musical things on Broadway were that and bring in the funk, bring in the noise, that um, Savion Glover, please. But otherwise, it was imported from London. You know, well, and, I think that you know. I think one of the things you mentioned when I when I interviewed you, Matt, was the the idea of the diversity of Jonathan's cast, which was really unusual in that right. time, and really kind right. of that was one of the big ways that he changed musical theater. Right, he did. And and Lynn was, Lynn, that was not lost on Lin-Manuel Miranda. It was not lost on everybody. But before corporate America had diversity and inclusion departments and, and leaders, John Larson had a diverse cast. He had a, Rent is, was a diverse and usually is a very, very diverse cast. And that's why it probably had appeal globally, you know, yeah. and, and it went around the world. It seems to me that, that we wouldn't have 
Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda without Jonathan Larson. And, 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 you know, the way Hamilton landed as sort of this unique piece of art reminds me of the way Rent landed. Um, I, it just, people weren't sure what to make of it at first in sort of mainstream. It was just so different from everything else. Um, and, and then it just took on this, this uh, momentum. Um, and it just reminds me of sort of what happened. And I, I, find, I just think the links here are just remarkable with, you know, with the way it influenced uh, Lynn and, and how it's, you know, it's like I said, I, it, I feel like Jonathan Larson's work lives on in, in all of this. It's, it's very much uh, can be connected back to him. Yeah, I mean, Lynn is a genius in his own right and has done fantastic things and he's incredibly motivated and he's a really nice guy on top of all that. Um, and he does attribute, you know, motivation and, and he, he lays roses, you know, at the feet of Jonathan and says, you know, what an inspiration he was. Um, and, 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 and rightfully so. And, and look at Broadway now, you know, how many rock musicals are up there. That's what John wanted. He wanted rock and roll on Broadway. And in Tick, Tick, Boom, when he's talking about his workshop of Superbia, he's insisting on a band. You know, he has no money. He's got to go do a focus group that I set up in an ad agency for him to pay for a musician. You know, so that, that he lived hand to mouth to make this stuff happen. But he was an inspiration for so many. And he was equally a dramatic storyteller as well as a musician. You know, so he knew how uh, to to make characters connect. And I'm and I'm very, very pleased with how Michael and Jonathan connect in in Tick, Tick, Boom. You know, so it's very hard to sit through it, you know, because I'm watching my life, you know, cross. I wondered about that. What's it like to see characters who are based on you in some small way? I, I don't know what that would be like. I, I don't I don't know how I could sit and watch a character based on me on stage. I think that would be really, I, it, it would really change the way I watched a piece of work. Um, well, well, especially in a story that involves a best friend who you lost, yeah. you know, so there's so much emotion there. You're, you're ripping off the Band-Aid, you know, continually in a sense. And I, believe me, I've had a lot of practice because Rent's been around for 25 years and now Tick, Tick, Boom is back. And but um, look, there, there's John took a lot of artistic license with the, the Michael character. I was not an actor, you know, um, little things like I didn't I had a really good car, but it wasn't a BMW. It was a Volkswagen. I did upgrade later, but initially, it was a Volkswagen. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a doorman building, but I had a lease in my name. You know, that was a big deal. You had a lease in your name. And you had an apartment that you didn't have to share with, you know, three other people. And a job you and a job you went to every day. So. Right. And I had a job and I had suits and I had stuff like that. And, you know, and, and he was inspired by that. And I didn't realize how much he was inspired by that um, because I was so inspired by him. But it's an, it's incredibly hard. Um, because he's not here to see it. And, and it reminds me every time of him not being able to see it. But then I remember, I hear the applause and I hear how, you know, people um, connect with it and how much they love it. And, you know, that softens the blow because it's not about me. It's about the message, you know, it's about the story. It's about love versus fear. It's about collective communities. 
Um, it's about not giving up. Jonathan didn't give up, you know, and, and, you know, you, you, but, but a story like this, you can't make up. I, I just, and, and I don't know why the world, you know, put it in my lap, but I'll be eternally grateful, you know, and, but I, I would trade it all in tomorrow just to have him back. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. you a, a tough question i thought that was the tough question i'm wondering you <laughs> that is that is but let me turn it the other way do you think jonathan knowing him as well as you do if he'd have been given the the deal you won't live to see it but you'll live on in your work you'll become a legend in theater do you think he would have taken that Gosh, that is a really tough question. Um, he so badly wanted people to hear his music and he was so um, blind about it and confident. I think he would have taken it and thought he could beat the odds. I, so I have yet to see the film. It's um, on our list for this weekend. Um, I've read a lot of interviews with Andrew Garfield about how this was a transformative experience for him. It happened at a transformative time in his life. His his mother passed, um, you know, during this time. Uh, watching it for the first time, how do you how do you feel about Andrew's performance as John, as somebody who's known him for so long? Right, he did a terrific job. I mean, it's sort of eerie when you see the original footage of John at the end, and then John, um, they look alike. He's got the body language. Um, he, you know, he's got a better flip turn than John did in the, the pool scene. John could not do a flip turn like that, but I'm really, I, I told them how much John, how important swimming was to John, which I take credit for. <clears throat> so they put that in, but I think Andrew Garfield did a terrific job as Jonathan. Um, he, he, he nailed it. Like, you know, the focus group scene, <clears throat> um, his, his caring for his friends, and, you know, the way he would take notes and, uh, you know, just John would, there was always like sort of a silent pause after you said something, you know, you know, important or dramatic. There was like a moment where he was taking it in and Andrew had that. Um, and, um, you know, who else had it really well was when Raul Esparza did it on Broadway. He had it too. He was terrific at that. So didn't Lin-Manuel at one point play the um the jonathan character yeah yeah that's when i when i first met him um <clears throat> i ironically knew lynn's dad uh because he was a a big leader in the um um 
you know, an activist in the Hispanic community in New York. And when I was working at Nielsen, his dad was on an advisory committee helping Nielsen reach out to Hispanic households. So I knew his dad, Luis Miranda. And when I met Lynn, he was like, oh, I've heard about you. And he he had done Tick, Tick, Boom at um, uh, Encores, where they bring musicals back just for like, like 10, 10 performances at City Stage, usually in the summertime. So um, Lin-Manuel played Jonathan, Leslie Odom uh, played Michael. I can't remember, the woman from In the Heights played um, Susan, but Leslie and Lynn were telling me then that they're working on Hamilton. And I was like, oh, Hamilton, put Hamilton aside, do more production, tick, tick, You know, you guys are so good at this. It would run for a long time. And they're like, no, no, we're really committed to Hamilton. So I was like, and I, and I said to him at the time, I remember this. I said, you know, had Jonathan lived, he had such a strong sense of right and wrong, you know, that was so important to him and politics were important to him, you know, that he, um, he, he would have written something, you know, now granted, you know, he died in 90, uh, 96 now, you know, after he would have written, written about Clinton or Bush, he would have been horrified probably by what's happened, you know, since then, no names mentioned, but he would have done a political piece. Mm. He would have done a contemporary political piece, you know, because unfortunately, you know, it's so painful to see, you know, how divided our country is right now. And he, that would have resonated with him. And he, I remember him telling me that, you know, his next thing was going to be about the political arena. You know, and believe me, there's a lot to talk about there. So I wondered if you wanted, I, I think you you went both to the LA premiere of the film and also the New York premiere, right? Yes. Um, and I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about, about the energy when the film was screened and what Lynn manuel said um, during those presentations and um, just the energy there. Yeah. He was, he was, he, Lynn came out on stage at both of them. In, in LA, it was at the Chinese Man Theater on Hollywood. And, you know, there was the big lights out front and big crowd and lots of paparazzi and, you know, it's a short red carpet. I, I try to avoid all that. Um, of course, I forgot my ID and like had trouble getting in. And I was like, you know, come on, this thing was dedicated to me. Let me in. Um, but uh, LA had a big party and it was fun. And there I finally, you know, I'd met Robin de Jesus, who plays Michael, was in Rent 10 years ago. And I'd forgotten I'd met him before. But the after party was fun because you could I finally met Andrew and the cast. And I saw Lynn and his dad. And that was really fun. Um, and the theater was big. And there was there's a you know, look, look, it's they need to have a lot of industry people there, you know, because it's you know, we're coming up on Oscar season and you know, Andrew's name is being floated around already and Lynn's name and the movie itself is so moving that hopefully it will garner some nominations. So it felt very big Hollywood, LA, and lots of cameras. Um, the um, And it was fun to get your, you know, to meet these people and have your picture taken. So that that's fun. New York was really more special for me. They did it at the Schoenberg Theater in New York City um, a couple of weeks ago on a Monday night. And we um, and all we got a lot more of John's friends in there, you know, like Anne Egan was there, who's the painter. All the paintings in the apartment are Anne's. She lived with John for 10 years. You know, she's she's such an inspiration to him. You see a lot of Anne and Mimi. The New York premiere was 
what didn't have a party afterwards, but the theater was the party. Nobody wanted to leave, you know, and uh, we, and all of John's friends were there. And, you know, I was sitting with Jerry Dixon and Amy Spangler, who was in the 2001 production. Uh, but Lynn came out on stage on both of them, you know, to talk to the audience, to thank them. And, you know, Lynn at one point said, like, if there was any movie I was destined to make, it was this. Mm. And he's so grateful, you know, for it. And Andrew Garfield was there and Robin and Judith Light and Vanessa and Alexandra, they were all there. And, you know, so I, and I took, I took my husband and I took my mom because, you know, I mean, John was like, you know, the other kid in our house growing up, you know, he was just always there. Well, we should mention that, that Jonathan and spent a lot of time in Sag Harbor and Bridgehampton um, because you had a family home yeah. growing up. You grew up in White Plains, but from the 60s on, you were a summer kid, at least, and you brought Jonathan with you. Yeah, yeah, we were we were first, we were mostly Sag Harbor originally. Before they built the house, we rented like little places, you know, I loved, you know, coming out here as a kid because it was, John and I were actually in camp in July and his family would go to Cape Cod. Uh, but, you know, so either I, I'd go to the Cape with him sometimes or he'd come out here a lot with me. Uh, so it was a lot of Sack Harbor and they, they built in Bridgehampton afterwards. And he loved it out here. Um, he loved, you know, being here. He loved the beach. Um, and Annette, I gave you that great picture of him on the beach in the off season with a crab on his shoulder. You know, that was so classic him, yeah. you know, and that was so he, you know, we and we have such a connection uh, with not only the Sack Harbor Cinema, which was the babysitting service, as I say, when we were kids, um, but also <laughs> with, with the community, with the beach. And, you know, he under, and, and back, you know, for those of you that were here back in the 60s and 70s, when there was a third of the amount of people here and there were just so many open fields, you know, that magic hasn't gone away. There are just more houses and more people. But the light, the environment, the oceans, the bay, the swimming, the swimming, which was so important to me and John, you know, is here. Um, and so, yeah, we had a, a real strong connection here. So, you know, and I, I, um, I stopped working about a year ago uh, and I've, I've been living in Sac Harbor, I, you know, and, and a lot in Florida as well, but I, I haven't had a summer in Sac Harbor since I was 15 or 16 when I was trying to get away from my parents, <laughs> you know, so, it's like John had a, a very strong connection to this place. And it's, it's still very, we're very lucky. We're very, very blessed and lucky to be here. So on Thursday, Matthew, um, you were at the Sag Harbor Cinema um, with Robin DeJesus and um, they screened Tick, Tick, Boom and there was an audience there and um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm so delighted that Julia, the artistic director uh, at, the, at the theater is, um, at, at the cinema is, is screening this. And um, just last week I said to, you know, John, I said, why don't I invite Robin out? Maybe he'll come out, you know? So I just texted him on a whim. I, less than a week ago, I said, hey, next Thursday, you interested in coming to Sac Harbor and doing a talk back with me after a screening? And he said, immediately text back, yeah, let's make it happen, you know. You know, I will say though the density of rent and tick tick boom is such where I feel like it makes up for <laughs> so many of the crap that other people write. <laughs> but, and, get produced. and get produced. My thing with Jonathan that always amazes me because listen, I think the writing is so brilliant. It's as an actor, it's so filling to get to do as a as a Puerto Rican actor, as as 
as a person of color, it's amazing because it's so layered, complex. We're allowed to be messy in a way that isn't a judgment call on my race or ethnicity. And so when I think of Jonathan, aside from the, the, like, the talent as a storyteller, I can't help but think what a wonderful white heterosexual male ally he was. <laughs> which, is, which is a rarity. <laughs> and, and so like, it, it, in terms of people in the position of power, like the one that he had, and, and so that is always what I, I think of him as an exponent because I feel like all of his goodness he makes multiply. And, and so when I think about how when I was in high school and the first time I saw a black or brown person on the cover of an album, it was rent, it was all the squares and we were all just integrated together. And, and that there was just no judgment over those characters and queer characters as well. And, and then to fast forward and think about how long that show ran, all the multiple productions. And I witnessed with my eyes, black, brown, queer folks buy houses have children, buy cars. He gave those black and brown folks financial stability. <laughs> it's like, it's so much bigger when I, when I really think through it all. He's, and it's still giving, he's still giving. Um, before I had, you know, John um, had emailed me about doing the story and your connection to the film, but I actually had the idea of doing this after I met you in the cemetery, I'm like, you know, I, it was on my list to do this story. And then John writes me, it's like, I don't know if you'd be interested in this story, but you know, here's, here's a. And just for our listeners to be clear, the John we're referring to right now is the lovely and talented John Shaka, who has been a big part of the Sag Harbor community, has served on regulatory boards in Sag Harbor and is currently leading the Sag Harbor partnership. And we love him. He says great things about all of you guys. And he was actually jealous. He was like, you're on the podcast. I'm not. <laughs> I think he'll be on a podcast sometime soon. Right. Yeah. Well, he just needs to have more famous right. friends. That's all. Yeah, John loves Sack Harbor. And, you know, I, I remember John's, uh, Jonathan Larson's parents, um, who I was very close to, were so impressed with John Chaka's like civic you know, responsibilities and his civic drive and his need to do for the community. Um, and so whenever they called, they weren't asking for me, they were asking for, how's John's political career? You know, <laughs> is he running? You know, oh no, he's running the Harbor Committee. Well, that's good. You're growing oysters. So they, they, they love that. One of the things that makes this area so cool is that it's already cool. So it attracts cool people but then the cool people being here makes it even more cool and we have all of these connections locally to to things that are happening and it, it's just always amazing to me that that yeah, anytime there's similar. there's some kind of a cultural event it feels like there's some of it there's some connection to to our area um in in one way or another and it's usually fairly direct like it is with you Matt. and, and it's uh it's just it's just one of the great things about this area we we're we have such a connection to the cultural community. Um, and, and that means a lot to, to a lot of us who live here. And it's authentic, right? Like it's not, it's authentic. It's not like it's manufactured because it's the Hamptons, you know? It's like, it's almost cool despite the Hamptons. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Can you imagine what Jonathan Larson would have done with the Hamptons as a musical? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I've been talking about doing a movie about it for a long time myself because, you know, it just all you have to do is go to Citarella and you get material, you know. <laughs> I mean, 
But then you also have the other thing. You also have the, you know, the the Shinnecock Nation and you have the often unseen Hispanic population that's laboring in all of these houses. And then you have, you know, the kids that grow up here and don't go to college. I just think there's so many layers that it could be really, really fascinating. Like a middle class that's like probably my generation of us that grew up here, we're probably the last middle and upper middle class that are going to be able to live here, you know, and that's kind of crazy. Outsiders are still really surprised when people, they find out people live here full time. I think they think that the last one out just turns off the lights and you don't come back until May. Right. (laughs) Right. You know, I, a good friend of mine, she, she lives here. Susie Elminger is an editor and a film editor. And I keep telling her, she she worked with Robert Altman. I was like, I wish Robert Altman was alive Mm. to do an Altman film about the Hamptons because there's so many little stories that go on all the time that I find hilarious and absurd. It'd be called the you know, players. <laughs> right. it, 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 you, you could redo the players uh-huh. or shortcuts in, in, the, in the Hamptons. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, Joe, you said something about, um, you know, the, the, the talented people and the special people, but you know, John and I grew up feeling sort of like, you know, oddballs or, or outcasts. I think Georgie you know? touched on it. It's, it's authentic connections. You, you were here, not because it was the Hamptons, it was, you were a summer kid and, and, you know, the summer kids then were all types of kids and, and the, the creative ones have gone on to great things. And I think that's, that's just, it's just awesome to, to have those connections, those entry points to, to all the different things that are happening culturally. Right. Well, like, I mean, the message, especially to kids who see this is like, if you don't feel like you fit in, that's okay. Follow your passion. I think they've learned that lesson finally. I, 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 I don't know because I'm not around kids all that much, I guess, but I see so much creativity coming out of like high schools um, and there's so much confidence uh, among kids of all kinds. Um, and, and I think kids who might describe themselves as outcasts still have that confidence. Well, I'll, I'll tell, you, so, tell you that my, my college age daughter really prides herself on being a complete weirdo <laughs> and oddball. I definitely think that the the cultural time that you're talking about had a lot to do with that. I think it I think it it told new generations to think about themselves in different ways. A little side note might be kind of interesting for you to know when I took a few years ago when my daughter was still in high school, I took her and the friend who played Angel to the Lower East Side one uh, warm day and kind of showed them sort of what the scene was really like. That's a very cool mom. So it doesn't look like in the 80s anymore, but I just thought even I even took them to CBG and shed some tears in front of the old building. I used to I interned at the Amato Opera, which was right next door to CBGB's. Sally and Tony took me in as an intern my second semester freshman year. I moved to the city and I interned with them. And, um, oh, that's terrific. I've got to show you guys pictures of, I have lots of pictures of Wigstock, you know, that festival, you know, on Labor Day, which was just like the height of the year for a lot of us. That was like Christmas was Wigstock. That was great. Well, they used to do, they did that in Tompkins Square Park, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, they, and then one year, I remember they moved it over to um, the Hudson River, like they were on the piers or yeah. something over there. Yeah, because they, they lost, they lost their, I don't know, the community, because it would go on forever in, in Tompkins Square Park. It was really like a, a, an opera marathon. Um, mm-hmm. But I have pictures of RuPaul selling T-shirts on the edge of Tompkins Square Park before he was famous. You know, the, the last thing I'll say about Tick, Tick, Boom is like, you know, the messaging, you know, and even if they're talking about George Bush and Jesse Helms and people like that, 
you know, and it's 1990, so much of it is applicable today. You know, I mean, there's so many themes. It's just a universal story, you know, a time transcendent story, you know, that goes on. So, um, you know, I hope you all enjoy it and I hope your kids enjoy it. Um, it's an important uh, education for the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. I hope they show it at the theater classes, at, you know, uh, the high schools here, things like that. And I'm glad that I showed up in that cemetery on November 1st. It was like, you know. I'm happy I did. You know, I bought the guacamole, John bought the beer, and somebody else bought the water. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.